the world we know is changing. I'm Moira Gunn, and welcome to Biotech Nation. I speak with Dr. Jean Kinney, the president and CEO of Prothena Biosciences. Prothena has a one-two-three punch for Alzheimer's, fighting amyloids, fighting tau's, and working on a vaccine to potentially prevent Alzheimer's in the future. We'll also talk about their work in Parkinson's and ALS, and on the role of amyloids in Down syndrome. And now, Dr. Jean Kinney. Well, Jean, welcome back to the program. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me back. Now, you and I spoke prior to this interview, and two points stuck with me. Uh, yes, we're talking about Alzheimer's disease, but often people talk about their work treating symptoms. You were talking about two other points, treating the underlying disease and working on prevention, not early detection, but rather prevention. Are these two efforts you know, completely separate or do they actually inform each other? They do inform each other. In fact, you know, even our understanding around symptomatic treatments uh, inform how we think about the disease. And to be clear, we need both. We need symptomatic treatments, which has really been the mainstay of how we've thought about treating patients with Alzheimer's disease historically. And, you know, an exciting now paradigm shift that we can see moves to disease modifying treatments, treatments that do target the underlying cause and progression of the disease. And of course, what we believe is ultimately having those tools in the treatment armamentarium uh, will be better for patients in, in as much as we can actually think about both components. As we think about the shift from symptomatic treatments to disease-modifying treatments, what we're really talking about is moving from things that really address the function of the patient on a shorter-term basis, something that helps patients function a little bit better those treatments tend to rely on the very cells, the very nerve cells or neurons in the brain that are actually affected by this disease. So as those cells continue to be lost, as the disease continues to progress, those symptomatic treatments become less effective, unfortunately. So what's really needed in the field and what has been needed is a shift to thinking about how we preserve those cells and we actually slow the relentless progression of Alzheimer's disease. And of course, as we understand the biology related to that and think about therapeutic interventions that slow that progression, we can start to think a little bit further ahead to places where, well, gee, if, if that biology is important with respect to the progression of disease, what is its influence on the cause of disease? Can we move even earlier in our thinking around treatment and start to talk about prevention of disease in the first place? And of course, the biology teaches us and informs us as we go and as we iterate the science and move these types of treatment approaches forward. Well, let's start with the disease itself. Who's at risk how long does it take to develop? And what do we know about the underlying cause now? Yeah, Alzheimer's disease is a complex disease. Um, you know, there are multiple contributors to the disease, one of which can be genetic. And that informs us a lot about the biology that we think underlies the cause of the disease. Um, a number of genetic changes, particularly those that lead to an increase in a certain protein in the brain called amyloid beta, uh, you may hear amyloid used quite a bit. So amyloid beta would be the protein that we're talking about here. Um, those genetic changes can actually lead to a cause 
of Alzheimer's disease in a small number of individuals. It tends to be a very small percent of the total population of individuals that have Alzheimer's disease. In the majority of cases of individuals with Alzheimer's disease, they're idiopathic, meaning of unknown origin. We don't really know what causes the disease in those individuals per se. There tend to be a number of risk factors that are involved, many of which are genetic, some of which are environmental. Um, but at the end of the day, what we understand is that the biology that ultimately contributes to us being able to recognize this as a disease called Alzheimer's disease are changes in these same biological pathways that were informed by those smaller number of genetic patients. So for example, changes in this protein amyloid beta, changes in either how it's produced, how it aggregates or how it's cleared, and, and where sometimes we see some deficiency in those processes, and then what that amyloid beta does to other proteins in the brain. Proteins, for example, that go by the name of tau, and other proteins that are also changed in the context of disease. So we think these proteins are very important players in cause and progression of disease and inform, in fact, our thinking about how to therapeutically go after these, uh, these pathways so that we can think about slowing progression of disease. And in fact, um, as you know, there's some very exciting recent data that suggest, in fact, this may be a very feasible pathway. Just as you said, we, we hear about, well, there's all these genetics, but everybody in the family doesn't get it. You know, it's like, what's going on? And sometimes I hear the term, there's been also a toxic insult. What does that mean? Yeah, in the case of these proteins, um, what we think is happening is that proteins such as amyloid beta, um, when they go awry in the system and lead to a negative biological impact, they can actually lead to dysfunction, not just of nerve cells in the brain, but also of other proteins in the brain that lead to further impact on nerve cells in the brain. So we think that this insult begets insult. And this, when this process starts, it becomes problematic. It really all starts with protein dysregulation. So proteins are things that our cells make every day. And when those proteins are made, of course, they need to take on a certain three-dimensional shape in space in order to go and do what their normal function is. So, you know, a, a certain protein may be made, it may fold into an appropriate three-dimensional shape, and when that happens, it can bind to other proteins and go on and do what it's supposed to do, either, you know, feed the cells and make sure that the cells are healthy, it may go on to make tissue, it may go on to make teeth, it may go on to do all, all sorts of other things. And of course, that's what we want to happen, that's a normal healthy protein process, but of course, it doesn't always work perfectly. And when those, when those proteins are made and they take on a shape that's not normal, it's not functional, it's dysfunctional, well, then we actually have systems in our cells that, that recognize those proteins and literally tag them for removal with the, the kind of internal trash cans of the cells, if you will. And where we get into trouble with disease is when those proteins that are not in the correct shape, the proteins that have gone awry, they've become the bad actors, when those proteins actually start to overwhelm that trash clearance system, they start to aggregate, sometimes with inside the cell, sometimes outside the cell, and they lead to a number of processes that can be reflected then as disease and the symptoms of disease. And in fact, we think this is very relevant in Alzheimer's disease. We think these proteins like amyloid beta, which tend to be form these sticky clumps outside of the cells in the brain and lead to a number of problematic biological processes, one of which is to actually further dysregulate another protein, which is called tau, 
which then leads to neuronal dysfunction and ultimately the, the lack of clarity of thinking that's diagnosed as Alzheimer's disease. But one thing leads to another and you expect that your body is going to remove those things, those proteins, which were not generated correctly, and but for some reason it's not in this case. I think that's right. That's correct. Now let me stop you here. Uh, you've been working on Alzheimer's for many years now in your career, and if there's one thing that changes over time and has changed, it's technology. It gets better and better, and that means science gets better and better. What can technology and science tell us now about Alzheimer's uh, that we just didn't know, say, I don't know, 10 years ago or pick a time frame here? Yeah, no, 10 years is a good time frame. I've been in uh, thinking about therapeutics and Alzheimer's disease for many decades. So 10 years seems like a fair number. And I'll say that, you know, the, the, the change in how we think about the disease on multiple fronts has evolved very dramatically over that time period. You know, in the first instance, we can think about the disease biology itself and what we understand about the disease biology. You know, for many years, the relationship, for example, between amyloid beta and tau, these two key proteins, wasn't fully understood. And we're still learning about certain aspects of that. But we've, we have a much better understanding that these, these two proteins are likely on a critical pathway to the development of the symptoms that underlie Alzheimer's disease. Um, we think more, uh, you know, a sophisticated way about how we actually target these proteins. You know, where on these protein sequences do we want to intervene in order to have the best biological impact. If it's their shape and space that leads to their bad biology, where can we best intervene in that shape in order to ameliorate or, or negate that bad biology and, and restore the normal good biology? And these are important learnings that we've made over the years. But I have to say, you know, one of the areas where we've seen just remarkable progress over the years has been how we assess these treatments that intervene in a clinical trial setting. So as you know, there are multiple steps that we think about with respect to clinical trials. Uh, there are state uh, phase one studies, phase two studies, phase three studies. But, you know, Alzheimer's is a complex disease. It, it, it likely the biology underlying Alzheimer's disease has been resident for many years before the symptoms actually appear and, and, and a patient receives a diagnosis. So in the context of that very long, slowly progressing disease, how do we assess the potential benefit in a relatively short period of time? And here, progress around the development of biomarkers, the use of non-invasive brain scans to understand, for example, if individuals have large amounts of this amyloid beta protein in their brains have really evolved significantly over the year. Or over the years, I'll, I'll tell you a, a story that, you know, from the scientific space, when the very first brain scans, these are called PET scans, became available to measure amyloid beta in the brain, there were two studies ongoing, both of which reported data, independent studies, two different companies. And in each of the studies, they found that approximately 30 to 35 percent of patients that were evaluated did not have sufficient levels of amyloid in their brains in order to register on these scans. And of course, if you're treating individuals with anti-amyloid treatments, you want to know for sure that there's a sufficient amount of amyloid there that you could potentially make a difference. And so I think, you know, those kinds of learnings have now been incorporated into how we think about clinical studies. I think, um, you know, 
scientists across the field are much better thinking about which type of patient that might volunteer for such a study would be most likely to receive benefit during the course of the study, how we actually measure change over time. And I can come back to that. But you know, the, the way we actually measure change in a relatively short period of time is absolutely critical because we need the right sensitivity to be able to see less change over time. Um, and even understanding, you know, some key uh, biology that allows to deliver higher doses of these types of agents over that period of time so that we have the potential to accrue benefit and be able to report that out in the context of a clinical study. So it really does take a village. And what we've seen is that as certain companies have gone in and run clinical trials in this space, those learnings have informed the next set of studies and those learnings the next. And I think this is exactly how science is supposed to work. And we've seen real examples of that over the last 10 years here in Alzheimer's disease. Well, let me ask you this question. If a third of the people in these studies who had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's because of various symptoms that are observable um, externally, uh, does it mean that amyloids weren't involved or that uh, the amyloid plaque, it depended where it laid in the brain that demonstrated the symptoms or... Or what? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's we a very say that, we we say that in science a lot. Or what? <laughs> right. No, I. You know, it's funny. It, it it really depends on whether you're speaking to a uh, a physician that might be a clinician diagnosing these patients, and of course, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is a clinical diagnosis, and it's based on a fulsome uh, evaluation, typically by a neurologist, um, that that would ultimately come to that diagnosis. Um, I think what we're talking about in this instance is relevant biology. So, you know, as we think about uh, the presence of this protein and, and seeing it in sufficient quantities, I think what we can all agree to is whether we have a propensity to, to, to find the disease biologically or, or clinically is probably less important than the statement that if, if we want to see a benefit of a drug that targets a certain type of protein, we want to make sure that protein's there. Um, and then we can have a, a very... Uh, academic debate as to whether those individuals actually have Alzheimer's disease or some variant thereof, right? And I think that's a, a different discussion, but at least from, you know, understanding which individuals may be most likely to benefit from these types of treatments, it's a very important step forward and certainly was at the time, you know, the development of these types of biomarker approaches. Now they're routinely used. We see them, uh, you know, in almost every clinical study, uh, these types of non-invasive brain scanning technologies are employed to make sure that the appropriate patients are included in clinical study and also to evaluate changes in the amyloid level of patients in their brain in a non-invasive way over time. And, you know, as we start to look at where we are today and where the field is moving, we're still seeing significant progress. The, the use of blood-based biomarkers, so a blood test, for example, which seems now to actually relate well to those brain scans are things that are starting to be evaluated and evolving in real time. So certainly what we hope is that we can even move away from these types of brain scans in the future and move to a more simple blood test that would give us similar types of information. Well, I like the idea, you know, you go in for your annual or whenever you finally get in and they say, oh, we got to do blood tests. They start taking all this blood out of you. If one of the tests could be looking at this, it'd be, I'd be very happy. I would be very happy. Yeah. Now let's talk about what Prothena itself is doing, because I know 
Well, you have a number of drugs, one of which is in phase three of human clinical trials, the, the final phase before approval. Let's talk about what you're doing because you have a whole coordinated effort here. We do. So as you know, as we saw the changes happening in the field at Prothena, and you know, maybe I'll, I'll back up a moment. Prothena, as a company, actually started out of another company by the name of Elan Pharmaceuticals, and you know, when we spun out from Elan, what was notable there was just the historical perspective that we had in this space. So much of the work around targeting this protein amyloid beta, um, thinking about how tau and amyloid beta are related, much of that basic scientific understanding came from the scientists at Elan and then ultimately uh, that came to Prothena as we started this company. And so what we saw you know, in, in the field was were these advances in how we were assessing clinical trial design elements. And so, you know, let me give you a, a kind of a way to think about this. Um, you know, if we think about Alzheimer's as a relatively complex disease, multiple things contributing to it, and then we have to measure what happens when you actually intervene in that process to the progression of disease. The way I like to think about it is it's akin to a steamship on sailing across the ocean. Um, you have a steam engine. There are multiple parts to a steam engine. And, you know, if we want to target amyloid beta, it's, it's somewhat similar to stop shoveling coal into the steam engine. But in order to understand if that's effective, I now have to measure the speed of the ship over the next, you know, let's call it 100 meters and ask if the ship has slowed down its speed or not. And so we need very sensitive measures to be able to measure that the ship has slowed down. We need to be able to measure the effectiveness of that approach. And I think in that analogy, what we saw was we were getting much better at that as a field, as a village. The entire community was working together to bring together better measurement tools. We went from you know, the old sailing adage of using a rope with knots on it to measure speed to actually GPS tracking system. We, we, we could calculate how much you know, the ship would slow in speed if we made a manipulation to the steam boiler below. And in fact, that's, as we saw that progress, we said, well, my goodness, um, you know, we think that this is the right time to really be able to now move what we know about the biology and iterate this field forward. So what we did at Prothena was we endeavored to develop um, what we would call a potential best-in-class molecule. The idea being that, you know, the first-generation approaches, which are likely to be successful, um, may have some limitations with respect to how easily accessible they are to every patient. And, and what we wanted to make sure in a molecule that targeted amyloid beta is that any patient that could be benefited by this approach would have access to it. And so we needed to move away from IV infusion centers and, and to a more at-home delivery system. And so we, we made a, a, an antibody given, you know, using our experience and, and historical perspective that's really designed to be administered once a month, subcutaneously, single syringe, um, ultimately at home delivery. And that's what we call our target profile. So that's what we, uh, we set out to do. We set out to make an antibody with those characteristics. That antibody's name is Pyrex-12. It's currently in phase one clinical studies. And our job now is to prove that, in fact, we have such an antibody through empirical testing in the clinical space. And so that molecule is moving forward. That, if you will, you mentioned a one, two, three, five, we feel like that's number one, right? Let's make sure we have a foundational treatment that provides some benefit, that any patient that will benefit from access will have access to. And so we think that's a very important first step. And that's an anti-amyloid. That's correct. 
That's correct. And so that's of the class of drugs where we're seeing clinical data from some of our friends and colleagues in the field today, suggesting that, in fact, that type of approach is providing some benefit to slowing disease progression. So that's punch number one. Okay, what's punch number two? Punch number two is to do better. If we have patients that are already diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, we want to move forward and actually provide a better set of drugs, a better relief, a better efficacy profile uh, for patients. And what does that mean? Well, it means doing more things to the steam engine. In addition to stop shoveling coal in, maybe we actually throw some water on the coal that's already hot in that steam engine. And I think, you know, there we think about other parts of biology that we can combine with this amyloid beta uh, targeting approach. A great example of that would be this protein tau that we've talked about. And in fact, um, we are working with our friends at Bristol-Myers Squibb on an antibody that was developed and invented here at Prothena, which is known as PRX005, which actually targets this protein tau. Now, currently it's being developed independently and alone, but we, you know, we think at some point it might make some sense uh, to combine a tau targeting approach with an amyloid targeting approach to see if we can't do better. And I'd point to other areas of science where this uh, type of approach, um, I think, is you know, well known. I mean, we, if we look to the HIV field, for example, the first therapy in that space that really made a, a significant difference for patients was AZT. Um, but AZT wasn't uh, perfect, uh, as no drug is perfect. And um, what we saw was that the field moved to next generation drugs that were a little bit better. And then we moved to combination approaches, which were a little bit better. And ultimately, we moved HIV from a fatal disease to a disease that now is chronically manageable. And I think that's kind of how we see the future that we'd like to, to deliver for Alzheimer's disease, to move from what is today a 100% fatal disease to something that ultimately becomes chronically manageable. Um, but then ultimately, we need the third punch, which is to prevent this disease from occurring in the first place. And the way we think about prevention is to move even earlier into the process, to understand if there are individuals that have the biology, the predisposition that they may likely develop Alzheimer's disease as a clinical disease later, and understand if we can intervene at that point, whether we can actually either slow that transition to clinical Alzheimer's disease or ideally prevent it altogether. And I think, you know, there, what we see as being important is a very easy to take, easy approach modality. And so what we think of in that space is a vaccine. Most of your listeners will be familiar with vaccines, with, uh, you know, the recent COVID vaccines that have been out. And so, you know, it's a slight shift in how we think about treatments from the monoclonal antibodies that we're talking about in the treatment setting now to a vaccine, because with a vaccine, I'm asking you and your immune system to make the antibodies due to the vaccination. And so it's a little bit different. It provides a different modality, a different approach. Um, but we have developed a vaccine that we expect to start clinical trials next year on, known as PRX123. And that vaccine is designed to ask your body to generate antibodies to both amyloid and to tau simultaneously. And with the idea then that we can address whether that affects the relevant biology before you even have Alzheimer's disease in the first place. And so we're very excited about that approach. And we think between the three approaches, it moves us to a place where we can talk about 
um, the first generation of targeting amyloid alone and having a best approach there to a second place of improving an efficacy profile in patients that have disease, and then ultimately moving that treatment paradigm into a prevention setting. Do you have any sense whether this would be a vaccine? Well, everybody just gets it. Everybody gets a shingles vaccine. You know, Everybody just gets it. Or will it be for those who have, say, a particular genetic profile or a history in their family? Yeah. So in the first instance, it's probably the latter is where you would start. You'd want to know that uh, individuals had a predisposition to develop the disease. Um, and you'd want to make sure that just from a risk benefit perspective, we're testing something new in clinical science. We want to make sure that, um, that that's appropriate. And so likely you'd go into, in, you, you'd take that kind of approach and you'd start your initial clinical evaluation in individuals that were, had, had a higher likelihood of ultimately going on to develop disease. Um, and it, importantly, individuals that had the relevant biology that, was, that you felt was important to ultimately leading to disease. Um, that paradigm is known as a secondary prevention paradigm. So you kind of have that precedent biology, but haven't yet developed the clinical manifestations of the disease, in this case, Alzheimer's disease. Ultimately, what you're pointing to, which I think is the golden ring and where ultimately we'd like to see all of this end, quite frankly, is in something called primary prevention. And primary prevention is really where everyone is vaccinated uh, to the extent that uh, folks are willing to be vaccinated. And, you know, the goal then would be to stop the biology uh, really before it really had a chance to take hold. And I think, you know, you, you in terms of how we think about in other fields, stepping through medicine and, and, and developing iterative knowledge that we can apply to the next step, more typically you'd see success in secondary prevention for this type of approach before you'd move to primary prevention studies. Well, I know you're very busy over at Prathena. I mean, it's not just Alzheimer's. Uh, you're also working on Parkinson's. You and I had an interview several years ago about what you were doing there um, and uh, ALS. You're also looking at the role of amyloids in Down syndrome. Yeah, we do have a program. It's still in the preclinical stages, but we have a program targeting uh Alzheimer's disease in individuals with Down syndrome. Um, we think that's a, a very potentially important uh, therapeutic that, that needs to be brought forward. And, and the reason for that is that if you think about the, the chromosome that's responsible for Down syndrome, it, it actually overlaps a bit with this protein that we're discussing, this amyloid beta protein. And so a, a very high number of individuals with Down syndrome will ultimately develop Alzheimer's disease in their later years. And so we think, um, you know, we think given our, our understanding of this space, our evolving understanding of the biology, particularly around the the role of these proteins and their effect on brain function and brain structures, um, that there are certain ways to think about this specifically in the context of Down syndrome, which may make sense. So it's, it's still in the uh, preclinical space. We haven't started clinical trials yet, but we're very excited about that approach uh, and that program. And we think it's a logical extension of the knowledge that we've built by understanding how these proteins operate in the context of idiopathic, again, go back to that term, idiopathic uh, Alzheimer's disease, meaning uh, the, the broad-based Alzheimer's disease of unknown origin. Now, while that's still an early stage yet, you have a number of trials in, in several of these areas going on. How would people find out about what's going on and if they or their loved ones might qualify? 
Yeah. So as you point out, our, our knowledge, our core fundamental knowledge really is around how these proteins become dysregulated and, and lead to ultimately organ dysfunction that leads to disease. So as you're pointing out, you know, that can occur certainly in the central nervous system, in the brain, and, and that's relevant to diseases like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, as we've discussed. It can also occur in the periphery. So in the, in the periphery, um, you can see cardiac or heart involvement. You can see um, you can see kidney involvement, which can lead to dysfunction of those organs for a different set of diseases known as the systemic amyloid diseases. So these are diseases such as AL amyloidosis or ATTR amyloidosis. And in our portfolio, we have a number of molecules that are in clinical trial um, any, in, in different stages, anywhere from phase one to phase three clinical trials for either these peripheral amyloid diseases or these central nervous system amyloid diseases. And if uh, your listeners are interested, they can certainly go to prothena.com. They can click on the clinical trials tab and uh, there'll be access there to all of the various clinical trials and they can learn more about those and discuss those with their uh, physician of choice. Well, this is certainly an exciting time for, for all of these diseases or this cluster of diseases, if you will. I think so. I, you know, as I said before, having been in this field for uh, a number of decades and, and thinking about therapeutic approaches for diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, I don't think it can be understated how, how, how exciting the, the current period of time is. Thinking about a shift from symptomatic treatments to disease-modifying treatments. And I think as we've discussed on this call, um, once you can start thinking about disease-modifying treatments in the context of slowing disease progression, it allows you to think about how you expand that biology to, to iterate in, on the disease modification side and, and do better in terms of treating patients, but then also to change the paradigm yet again. And um, that's an exciting moment, I, I think, for any field and a particularly exciting moment for Alzheimer's disease, which is a particularly cruel disease as we see today. And one, uh, you know, the, until uh, very recently, uh, we didn't have a good idea really how we were going to slow down the progression of this disease. Well, Gene, always a pleasure. Thank you for coming on and, and know you're always welcome here. Well, thank you so much. It's great, great talking to you and I appreciate being here. Dr. Gene Kinney is the president and CEO of Prothena Biosciences. More information is available at prothena.com. That's P-R-O-T-H-E-N-A, prothena.com. Listen to more biotech podcasts at biotechnation.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Biotech Nation is a regular feature of the weekly public radio program, Tech Nation. Listen to the full show via podcast or on your local public radio station. For Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.